0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by two very special guests, uh, repeat Venture Stories guests, Lynn Alden and Scott Sumner. Uh, Scott, Lynn, thanks for joining. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, thank you as well.
0: Okay, so I'm excited to talk to you both because I've been reading both of your, your, your works for some time and, and you have lots of thoughts on, on macro and, and inflation. And um, I'm curious to bring us all together to talk about where there's overlap in some of our views and, and where there's difference in, in, in some of our views. Lynn, maybe we could start with you and you could just sort of set the scene, so to speak, because Scott is somewhat newer to, to your work, maybe you can just uh, sort of summarize your case for why you're so bullish on the US having to inflate its debt debt away, as opposed to uh, other options for, for dealing with its long-term debt.
1: Sure. I would say it primarily rests around the concept of the long-term debt cycle that was popularized by uh, uh, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater. Uh, and so that's a concept that I've kind of, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at his research and I've taken that research and, and, uh, you know, uh done side paths to it, done my own research on top of that. Uh, and I found that a, a very compelling viewpoint for for the basically the structure that that the United States and, and many other countries find themselves in. And so the concept of the long-term debt cycle is that we first hit the, you know, we, we first go down to the short-term business cycle. So the five to 10 year credit cycle during market expansion, you get more and more debt in the system as a percentage of GDP, uh, and then some sort of you know policy error or external catalyst or something. Uh, you know, uh, pricks that issue, uh, and so then you start to get a deleveraging or recession. Uh, and in this, in this, uh, you know, kind of regime that we've been in for many decades, policymakers come in, they cut interest rates, uh, they they often do some degree of fiscal stimulus. Although for many decades we've been far more reliant on the monetary policy side of things, uh, and then eventually that you know you you, you kind of short circuit the deleveraging, and you and you kind of get back into expansion. Uh, as quickly as possible because there's there's pain points among voters and all sorts of stakeholders. And generally what you do is you before you deleverage all the way down, you you start going back up. And so when we kind of string multiple of those credit cycles together, you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP each time. So you get lower lows, like higher highs and higher lows in terms of debt as a percentage of GDP, and interest rates keep hitting lower lows and lower highs. Uh, and so you get more and more debt in the system, and then eventually that starts to run into an issue. Of course, when you reach roughly the zero bound, maybe slightly below it in some cases. Uh, that's kind of a new concept of these of these negative nominal interest rates, but roughly zero bound. And at that point, debt is very, very high, uh, and you can't really rely on that that monetary policy easing anymore. And so, you know, if you go back to the United States, for example, last time you hit this situation was the 1930s, uh, and then going into the 40s. Uh, and so. At that point, that's where, if you go to say Ray Dalio's research or my own research, we show that you know mostly at that point we start to get a turn toward aggressive fiscal policy, where the the fiscal authority will run very very large deficits. Uh, large portions of those deficits are bought by the central bank, and the central bank also holds interest rates low, even if even if that fiscal expansion causes inflation. And so what you get is essentially, you know, you get the the uh, currency devaluation. And so you kind of deleverage some of that debt, uh, while while limiting how much is actually nominally defaulted on. And so you kind of get a you inflate a chunk of the debt away, and if they thread the needle like they did in the 30s and 40s, and you know even through the 50s, 60s, and 70s to some extent, uh, they get on with that system and kind of start that next multi-decade cycle. Whereas, of course, you know, there are some markets where they, you, you know, if you're an emerging market or some of other entity like that, it's much harder to do, and they're they're more prone to hyperinflation. Whereas developed countries generally, they they try to thread that needle towards moderate inflation, while interest rates are held below that inflation rate. That's probably best describes the situation we're in now, which is similar to the 1940s in the sense that. You know, the United States has very, very high federal debt as a percentage of GDP. Uh, unlike the 40s, we still also have significant private debt. Uh, and so, you know, last time we're in this situation, ran very large deficits. Uh, that time we had the external catalyst of a war. This time we have an external catalyst of a pandemic uh, hitting a highly leveraged system. And so we're seeing now, you know, some soft degree of policy coordination where they're holding rates at zero. They have a, a positive inflation target. Uh, and we are seeing uh you know large fiscal expansion.
0: Awesome. Lynn, thank you for, for, for laying out laying out the case. Scott, I, I'd be curious for, for any reactions on, on any of those ideas, whether the long-term business cycle or some of the other arguments built, built uh, on top of it, or any reactions or any questions, what comes to mind for you? Well, I certainly think
2: that's a, a plausible hypothesis. Uh, it might be correct. And I would add in one respect, our situation is even worse than in the post-World War II period, because that was a sort of a one-time run up in debt to fund the war. And after World War II, uh, we didn't tend to run large deficits. So the debt ratio came down fairly quickly. Now we're facing a situation where not only have we run up debts of say 100% of GDP or whatever, but we're looking at uh, future deficits that are much higher than we had in the post-World War II period. So the future trajectory for the national debt actually looks worse than it did in the 1940s, which if anything would support the claim that there's this risk of debt monetization. On the other hand, I am a little bit skeptical of whether we'll have high inflation for a number of reasons. It's it's actually not that easy to use inflation as a tool to say monetize debts or to reduce the burden of a national debt. There's kind of two ways in which you can think about how inflation can be used. There's a one-time gain you can get by dramatically increasing the price level and reducing the real value of existing long-term bonds. Okay, this happened to some extent after World War II. So you have 30-year bonds that were issued at low interest rates. If prices rise sharply, then the real value of that debt falls and it's easier to pay off. There's another sense in which you can monetize debt, which is to continually buy more and more bonds, increasing the money supply, and have persistently high inflation. And this is sometimes called seniorage. You're essentially earning inflation tax revenue by printing money, and that creates persistently high inflation over time. The problem you have is that the second type uh, basically is difficult to raise very much revenue from unless you have very high rates of inflation. So Lynn mentioned hyperinflation. I think at the peak countries can get persistently maybe 4% of GDP or something like that from printing money, but the um, US isn't going to go anywhere near that. So it's more likely that the gains we would get would be uh, from like a one-time reduction in the value of existing debt through a sharp upward spike in the price level. That would be a more feasible way to to sort of reduce the debt through inflation. Now there there is perhaps a third way, which is to artificially hold interest rates below uh, inflation. But I, I really don't think monetary policy is capable of doing that in the long run. I'm sure a lot of people disagree with me on that point because it looked like they were doing that in the 40s and it looks like they're doing that today. But I think it's actually more a question of the equilibrium interest rate falling to very, very low levels rather than being held down artificially by central banks. So that, that's a point at which there might be some dispute. But so the, the bottom line is here is there's several ways in which you can think of monetizing debt, and none of them are, are particularly appealing or easy to do without creating inflation that would be politically unacceptable in the United States. So I think this is certainly a danger. I've been opposed to the recent run-up in the national debt. However, I think the Fed is so committed to reasonably low inflation that it's unlikely they would do enough debt monetization to make a real difference in the burden of the debt to the federal government.
0: Before I pass it to you, one thing I just want to uh, flag for the group is is that we're all these are very nuanced perspectives and we're all fairly new to each other's perspectives. So feel free to also ask clarifying questions or for people to expand on certain on, on, on certain topics. Lynn, any any reactions or, or, or questions from you after hearing that?
1: Uh, so I A couple of points. So one is, uh, you know, if you look at the 40s just as, because that's the closest approximation we have. And as Scott pointed out, there are differences, both better and worse. So I mean, in on one hand, for example, the United States was a creditor nation back then, right? So we had a trade surplus. We, you know, we had more foreign assets than foreigners of our, of our assets. We had a net international investment surplus. Uh, whereas today we have a, 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 you know, trade deficit and we've had so many years of those deficits. that, of course, we have a, we have a, a negative net international investment position. Uh, which maybe will come up later in this topic. Uh, we also have, of course, weaker demographics. Uh, so that's actually uh, an argument in some ways for disinflation. Uh, and I would say both times had rapid expansions in technology, right? So in the 40s, it was more mechanical technology. Today, it's more information technology. By the way, you had massive gains in productivity, uh, which is uh, generally disinflationary. Uh, and so there are, differences here and there, right? And so, but if you go back to the 40s, uh, which again is the probably, you know, one of the closest uh, metrics we have here. And for people that aren't familiar, I have a whole bunch of charts that, that really kind of make this this comparison pretty clearly. But if you go look at that period, you know, from 1942 to 51 or so, they did yield curve control where they held yields below the inflation rate. You even had a period of time where you know year over year inflation reached like 19% while they were holding rates at zero. And so you kind of had a hybrid of what Scott describes. We had these kind of one-off price level adjustments, but then you had you had a few of them, right? So if you look at the 40s, there were kind of three big spikes of inflation. Uh, and so each one, you never really had a period of disinflation uh, of deflation after it. you just kind of level you just kind of stopped inflating. And so you had these like three stepwise increase in broad prices. Uh, and that differed to some extent from the 70s, because the 70s, had, you had a more persistent type of inflation. It was more, and I, I would chalk that up to the fact that the 40s was more fiscally driven inflation. Uh, and of course, they had price and wage controls at some points, whereas the 70s, you had more bank loan driven inflation, which tends to be a little bit more persistent. Uh, now, today, of course, because Scott pointed out, I, I agree, we have a, like, like a hybrid. So 40s is like the 40s, we have fiscal driven inflation. Uh, but unlike the 40s, we don't really see an endpoint. For where this, you know, these deficits would, would kind of cool off, whereas in the '40s we did. Uh, and so uh, I kind of would maybe end my certain point there and just say that you know we have its precedent of this, and markets are different now. Uh, I guess another point I'd make is that if you look over the past ten years or so, we've already been doing this with T bills. And so, for example, the Feds hold rates at zero for most of the past decade except for a brief period of time in, in say 2018, 2019. And of course, uh, short duration T-bills follow that that rate very closely. And so we, had, we already had T-bills comfortably below the inflation rate for the better part of a decade. And now that we're entering this more fiscal heavy environment since 2020, we also have longer duration treasuries below the inflation rate and even below the Treasury's forward inflation expectations. So even factoring out, let's say that this current inflationary pulse is somewhat transitory, you know, long-duration Treasury rates are still below uh, the the forward uh, expectations you get from looking at the tips market, for example. And so I would say we're in this environment, you know, currently, and it's it's more a question of magnitude uh, of of how much magnitude there will be.
2: Yeah, some good points there. Um, I I agree that the two types of inflation after World War II were kind of distinct. So my way of looking at it is the first uh, spike in inflation from about 45 to 51 was sort of a one-time price level adjustment. This took place under an environment where the dollar was pegged to gold at $35 an ounce. And the equilibrium price level after World War II was quite a bit higher than before World War II because of various factors like the delayed effects of devaluation and so on, and the reduced role of the uh, gold in central bank holdings. So once that one-time adjustment took place by, say, 51, they started uh, you know, moving away from artificially holding interest rates down, they got inflation under control. Then we had a different kind of inflation in the 60s and 70s, sort of a monetarist thing of we've left the gold standard. We're no longer pegging gold at $35 an ounce. We're increasing the money supply. That inflation is the one that shows up in interest rates. So typically, if you have a commodity money peg uh, at whatever $35 an ounce, the Fisher effect is not very operative. That is nominal interest rates don't tend to rise very much with inflation because investors don't think the inflation will be long term. It may look that way at the time, but uh, it's not expected to persist. That all changed in the sixties and seventies. When we became a pure fiat money, people started to expect the inflation to persist. So now the inflation generated high nominal interest rates and the federal government had to pay high nominal interest rates on its debt. So it started to lose the advantage of printing money that it it had in the initial post-war period now there certainly are some things we don't understand very well, which is why the equilibrium level of interest rates seem to be fairly low after World War II and again today. I certainly admit it looks strange to see interest rates this low. But in the way I look at this, and the way many macroeconomists look at this, it's sort of like, if this is what the markets indicate, and we're not getting a lot of inflation, that's an that's indication that the actual natural or equilibrium interest rate actually is very low. And I would add has probably been trending downward for 40 years or so, say since the early eighties. So the other hypothesis is that the interest rates are being artificially held to a below equilibrium level by central bank policy. I see why that's an attractive hypothesis. After all, real interest rates are extremely low as Lynn pointed out, but You know, In in most models, if you're artificially holding interest rates below equilibrium for many, many years, uh, you should have a lot more inflation than you do now. So I'm sort of leaning towards the view that for some reason we don't fully understand the entire global economy is migrating towards lower and lower natural rates of interest, maybe partly due to high global savings rates, partly due to the new economy, the information economy requiring less physical investment. I don't know all the reasons and maybe demographics, aging population, but if it is true that the equilibrium natural rate of interest is actually falling to very low levels, and these are not artificially suppressed by central bank policy, then the argument uh, that this is going to lead to high inflation gets somewhat weaker. I mean, it still could because, for instance, the natural rate may bounce back up. I mean if it's fallen for reasons we don't understand it could rise over the next few decades for reasons we don't understand so i certainly think there's a risk in the debt we're running up right now but it's not clear to me that that we're artificially depressing interest rates in the way that they that was perceived to occur after world war II for a while
1: yeah so I, I had a couple of points there and so I, you know there's a few ways to look at it and so one one thing i'd point out is that these markets that have very very low interest rates. So so generally, for example, in emerging markets, you still see uh, more positive interest rates. Whereas in in many developed countries like the United States, uh, Europe, Japan, that's where we're seeing these the you know the majority of these deeply deeply low interest rates. And those are you know pretty much without exception these environments where the central banks are buying large amounts of the of the government debt uh, and in some cases other types of debt as well. Uh, and so we don't really have an environment where the Central bank has just kind of not done quantitative easing, and rates naturally went down to these very low levels. Another thing I'd point out is that, you know, you can have a hybrid situation where prior central bank actions help to contribute to current low interest rates. And what I mean by that is, if you have a policy that increases in debt, so if you if you hold if you hold interest rates very low. Uh, and that encourages uh, governments and private actors to take out large amounts of of debt in different ways. Uh, that kind of constrains growth that's kind of disinflationary and that actually can put then structural uh, downward pressure on rates in the future. And so that's part of why in every one of these business cycles, interest rates hit a, a lower and lower peak level because there's more debt in the system. And there's less ability for the market to function properly uh, with higher interest rates, and so things start breaking and slowing down if those interest rates uh, get too high. And we saw that, for example, when Powell was trying to do quantitative tightening, was trying to raise interest rates throughout 2018. Uh, eventually, the market started to have a problem with that. And and you know we all we all know about the say the the big sell that happened in quarter four of 2018. Uh, and most people look at the the s p five hundred falling twenty percent, some of the tech stocks falling more. But under the surface, for example, there were no junk bonds issued in the United States for six weeks. Uh, and so basically it was the deeper problem was the fact that credit markets began to freeze at that level. Uh, and so it's it's very intertwined type of policy. So you have certain environments where you know the bond market is outright you know trying to go higher, and the central bank says, no, we're going we're gonna to hold that down anyway. And so that's an example of explicit yield curve control that you had in the 1940s. Uh, and then, you know, in certain parts in 2020, we saw Australia have to fight pretty aggressively to maintain their, I believe it was their three-year, their sovereign bond peg. Uh, and then we also saw, for example, that the Fed had to buy a rapid amount of treasuries in March and April to to fix the fact that the treasury market became illiquid in that time period. So there, there are these brief periods of explicit Yield curve control. Uh, However, you know I think a larger portion of it is just the fact that central banks have taken such a large amount of supply off the market, uh, and they've also encouraged high levels of debt that generally hinder growth and and tend to be more disinflationary.
2: It's a real complicated question: the, the relationship between central bank purchases of of public debt and interest rates. So, obviously, in a direct sense, if you if you buy debt, that directly tends to push the price of debt up and lower the yield on debt. On the other hand, over medium to long term, there's also very powerful forces pushing the other way. Like If you look at the data from the 60s and 70s, one way to describe it is that the Fed began to buy debt at a more rapid rate than in the 50s, which is just another way of saying they were increasing the money supply more rapidly, right? Because they do that through open market purchases, especially at that time. So the Fed is buying all these bonds. That should raise the price of those bonds and lower the yield on those bonds in the 60s and 70s. But instead the opposite happened because the longer term effect on inflation was so powerful that um, the Fisher effect, the higher nominal interest rates from inflation, completely overwhelmed the liquidity effect of adding liquidity and buying bonds, which in the short run lowers interest rates. So then the question is, well, how does that relate to what's going on now? And this is I think a really difficult question that we don't fully understand. On the one hand, yes, the Fed is buying a lot of debt. One important difference from the '60s and '70s is we now have these these interest-bearing, you know, bank reserves. Even though the interest rate is near zero right now, but you know, like in 2018, whatever, when it rose above zero, those were you know reserves where the Fed was paying interest on them. So there was really no seniorage being earned from money creation that went into the form of bank reserves. Today, the only seniorage the Fed actually earns by printing money is from the currency part of the monetary base, which is a relatively small percentage of the total increase in the base. So that creates the issue of then, well, what, what is actually going on here? If the Fed is buying all this debt, is that causing interest rates to be low? And if it is causing interest rates, to be low, why isn't it causing a lot of inflation, which should then push up interest rates? Like, why is it taking so long to get the inflation that we, we think we would expect to get? Now, you could argue, well, maybe we're getting that inflation right now, and that's a possibility, but we're not really seeing that in the uh, the bond market forecast. The tip spreads and so on are still relatively moderate going forward, so it's it's not clear to me how the Fed is doing what it's doing, if it is in fact holding down interest rates. Uh, now keep in mind here that um, the hypothesis that we will eventually have a lot of inflation because we're gonna have a lot of debt monetization from the Fed is a hypothesis that says debt monetization should create both inflation and high nominal interest rates, right? That's that's a corollary of this. Like if, if we really do get say, 5 10% inflation per year in the 2030s, we're going to have much, much higher nominal interest rates. So it's not clear to me how we can you know, explain a situation where the Fed is buying a lot of debt, artificially holding interest rates below their equilibrium level, but still having relatively slow growth over the last decade or so in inflation and nominal GDP. Uh, Those pieces just don't seem to fit together very well to me. And that's one distinction I would make between now and the late 40s, early 50s, when there was a lot of inflation, a lot of growth in nominal GDP, which is, of course, what was reducing the debt ratio at that time. So um, this may happen. We may see this occur going forward. But most models that I'm aware of suggest that we should already be seeing a lot more growth in prices and nominal GDP over the last decade, just based on the QE we've seen, if it really was going to have that effect over time, so that that's to me still a puzzle.
1: Yeah, so I think I think it's a good point, and the way I've addressed that is separating significantly the fiscal side from just the QE side, because the transmission mechanism to the public matters. And so, uh, you know, if you look at the '30s and '40s, for example, in the 1930s. In response to the the big stock crash, the Great Depression, uh, they ran pretty pretty significant deficits in order to, you know, do public works projects and things like that. Uh, but that was actually small compared to how much loan losses were occurring. And so you had a destruction in money supply. Uh unlike unlike today, banks, you know, there's no FDIC insurance, banks failed, uh, and you have deposits lost, you had a reduction of money supply, uh, and uh you know. Later in the 30s, they eventually got a handle on that. They started to increase the money supply again. But overall, the 30s was a you know a, a a pretty low rate of of total broad money supply growth. Whereas in the 40s, you ran much much larger fiscal deficits, and you weren't getting you know massive loan losses, and so that was translating into. Uh, uh, rapid increases in the broad money supply so so bank accounts and, and currency in circulation and so if you fast forward to the 2010s and 2020s you know those two decades in many ways look like the 30s and 40s so the 2010s you know you had this uh, great financial crisis uh, a lot of the metrics look similar to the uh great depression with the exception that you know it, it happened in an environment where uh, the, basically, the, res- the response time is quicker, and there was FDIC insurance, and, and so fewer banks failed. Uh, they were recapitalized at a quicker pace. And But if you look at what actually broad money supply did in the 2010s, uh, it was actually pretty tame. We did not have rapid broad money supply growth. So even though you had rapid quantitative easing, most of that just re- recapitalized the banking system and brought them from a level where they had very, very low reserves as a percentage of assets. So going into the crisis. You know, bank cash assets were something like three percent of their total assets, uh, and and you know, ever since then it's been a much higher percentage. And so they're 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 forced and they're desiring to hold a larger uh, you know percentage of their assets in reserves uh, with the Fed. Uh, and so you know that rapid QE that we saw throughout the 2010s, uh, along with kind of these moderately large fiscal deficits, they offset some of the loan losses, but they didn't just rapidly increase the broad money supply. They only rapidly increase the Fed's balance sheet, whereas if you go into the 2020s decade so far, so so we have you know a year and a half to work with, uh, and but so far it's shaping out like the 40s in the sense that we have this external catalyst. Uh, unlike the unlike the Chesnate period, banks went into this period already very well capitalized in terms of how much uh, you know cash assets they have as a percentage of their assets, how many bank reserves they have, uh, and so you know this whole period of huge fiscal deficits and quantitative easing was not meant to recapitalize the bank system. Instead, it was actually increasing the broad money supply. And so unlike the the response to the downturn in the 2008 period, uh, this time we had massive you know, uh, stimulus checks go out. We had PPP loans that turned into grants. We had childcare taxes. We had uh, massive increases to the rate that you get if you're unemployed. Uh, and so we had this huge uh, multi-trillion dollar You know, it's essentially a helicopter drop, and unlike that previous period, that actually reached into people's bank accounts, that reached into currency in circulation, and so we saw a a broad level of of money supply increase, Uh, and so that's why I'd argue we're seeing inflation this time around at a more substantial pace than we saw last time, Uh, and you know, the bond market can send us uh, conflicting signals because you know, again, the Fed is a large buyer of those of those treasuries. And they're even a large buyer of the tips market. Uh, And so, you know, we're getting this period where we're having rapid money supply growth, we're having a spike in inflation, uh, and yet the Fed is holding rates at zero. And there are a lot of institutions and pools of capital, they're pretty much mandated to buy some bonds. Uh, And so, uh, you know, they're kind of stuck in that system, and they can choose, you know, they can go out longer on the curve to get some yield, instead of, you know, staying in the short end of the curve and getting no yield. Uh, but even then they're still stuck they're still submerged below the inflation rate and i would say that some of this is intentional so i don't know if you if you've read it but there was a paper released by blackrock in 2019 uh, and they were they also had advisor uh stanley fisher a uh, uh, former vice chair of the fed advising them on that paper and they basically it's interesting they actually were very uh, prescient in the sense that you know this was pre-pandemic and they laid out the roadbook the, the, the playbook that we went through in 2020 and 2021, pretty directly where they said, you know, because interest rates are so low, there's not gonna be a lot of monetary policy space for the next downturn. Uh, it's gonna be rely more on fiscal. However, the, they said the downside of fiscal is that if you do a lot of fiscal spending, you could get a burst of inflation and therefore there would be a, a, a soft policy coordination between f- uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy where they would essentially hold rates low Despite a period of inflation, and so it's actually it's actually interesting how closely we followed that playbook uh, that was you know even outlined by uh, or or advised by someone that you know obviously had a senior position uh, in the Federal Reserve. Okay,
2: let me uh, come in a couple of points here. I want to talk both about the monetary base and the broader money supply that you raised. So, on the monetary base, if you think of the big QE injections of base money during the 2010s. Normally, that would have been very inflationary in the long run, unless the money were withdrawn from circulation once the economy recovered from recession. But what makes the 2010s different from the 1940s is now a lot of this base money is interest bearing bank reserves. So the Fed actually has two choices to prevent uh, inflation if it wants to. One choice is to pull the money back out of circulation through open market sales. The other choice is just to raise the interest rate on reserves high enough so that a lot of the reserves stay in the banking system and don't go out and get spent. So that's, the the monetary base, the QE itself, to me is not necessarily a big inflation worry. Now you are correct that um, the, the better issue is probably how much of this goes out in broad money growth. And we've seen, along with the fiscal stimulus, pretty substantial growth in the broader money supplies. Again, there is, I think, a real risk of inflation from this, but it's not entirely clear that that's necessarily what's going to occur. One analogy I would make here between the current situation might be the situation around like 1951, where there was a, a very high rate of inflation, but then the Fed got serious about controlling inflation and inflation then stayed low for more than a decade. We're in a situation now that's a little bit like the post-World War II period in the sense that like a lot of savings was accumulated during World War II, and a lot of savings have been accumulated during the COVID shutdown because people have simply been unable to spend money. The choice faced by the Fed is how do they control monetary policy such that when things get back to normal, all of this increased money supply doesn't spill over into higher inflation. And I believe the Fed can do that if it's uh, sensible in terms of following market signals and and reacting if there's any sign of uh, inflation spilling over beyond temporary sort of supply shortage type inflation that we're seeing now, and especially focusing on financial market forecasts. So as long as financial market forecasts are that inflation will remain relatively low going forward, I'm not too concerned about the current stance of monetary policy, despite all these uh, large bank balances that people are holding at the current time. The real danger is if inflation does start to pick up in a persistent way and the Fed refuses to act, loses credibility with the markets, then we're back to the 1960s and 70s. So still, despite everything that's happened so far, in my view, the question of whether we'll have high inflation will hinge on things that haven't really been decided yet, actions that the Fed will or will not take over the next few years, because the current increase in the money supply has been mostly reflecting an increased demand for money associated with the COVID shutdowns. And the real question is, what's gonna happen with Fed policy when things get back to a more normal situation? where these kind of uh, inflated money supply figures might be expected to lead to high inflation, does the Fed react to that or do they allow inflation to start to accelerate? Um, Right now they say they're committed to a 2% inflation target. There's a lot of institutional um, sort of momentum within the Fed that that target really needs to be taken very seriously or they'll lose credibility. Um, there's a lot of people there that live through the higher inflation periods earlier decades. So I'm not convinced they're going to uh, simply allow higher inflation. And I am convinced that they have the tools to prevent it if they have the discipline to do so, if, you know, to use these tools if needed. Obviously only time will tell whether that's true. And I suppose to some extent that reflects politics too, because the Fed is a political, political institution and if the political system starts leaning on them very very hard to inflate that could change things but we'll have to see how that plays out
1: i think that's a point to to dive into nuance on because that could be i think that's where we diverge a little bit so the part that i would agree with is that i do think that how much inflation we get going forward uh will you know there are parts that are uncertain i would propose that they rest more with the fiscal side than the monetary side and so if we think of how broad money supply gets created, so going back to the 2010s, why did the QE not not result in broad money supply going up? You know, banks, you know, once they have that QE, they can either lend it or not lend it. And so, you know, during, you know, when banks lend money, uh, that that creates deposits in another part of the banking system. And so you have that money multiplier effect. So you get a, a, a bigger ratio of broad money to base money Uh, And so right now, we're in a period of of a low money multiplier effect, whereas back in the 70s, you had a very high multiplier. Uh, And actually, the last time we had a multiplier this low, uh, again, was the 40s. Uh, And that's why I keep going back to that period. Uh, And so uh, the other way to get broad money supply increases is when the fiscal authority uh, says, "Okay, well, the banks aren't lending, so we'll go ahead and run massive deficits. Uh, And so uh, that's kind of the environment that we're in now which is why I compare that more to the 40s. And so in the, in the 1970s, we had a lot different situation than now in a couple of ways. One is both federal and private debts as a percentage of GDP were low in that time period. And then secondly, a lot of the inflation we had it was driven by the fact that we had uh, oil issues. And so oil production of oil kind of peaked out domestically. We became more reliant on imports and we ran into that structural issue. Uh, and so you know, back then, a lot of the inflation was that combination of banks were lending uh, and you had uh, supply shortages. And so the reason that the Fed could could control interest rates, uh, especially towards the end of that decade was that a lot of those interest rates were based on market forces, bank lending activities. And so by raising interest rates and putting the economy essentially into a recession, they could cool off that rate of money supply growth uh, and and you know taper that inflation. Whereas in the 1940s, you know, it was the, the inflation was not coming from bank lending. Uh, it was coming from the fiscal authority spending that money into the economy, uh, and then you know, basically, essentially bullying the Fed into uh, buying large large amounts of those treasuries and holding rates low. And so the Fed, I mean, we know from writings at the time, the Fed didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that they, for the better part of a decade, gave up their independence, uh, and they've cited those concerns. Uh, in their meeting minutes, uh, they, they've actually referenced the 40s. They've referenced other other countries doing yield curve control, and th- so they're aware of the risks of losing independence. Uh, and so, but basically, the reason I would suggest that the Fed's tools are limited this time is that because the the inflation's coming from the fiscal side, uh, their modulation of interest rates, you know, are, have a less of an impact on what Congress decides to do than what say banks and market participants decide to do. Uh, And then two, because we have federal debt at such high levels, uh, and we have such large deficits that, you know, unlike previous decades, the foreign sector is not really buying large amounts of those treasuries. Uh, If the Federal Reserve were to not buy treasuries, you know, they could run into a supply demand issue with treasuries, uh, and that would push yields up. Uh, And we'd have, you know, if if you do the math, for example, $30 trillion in national debt, if you had 3% interest rates, uh, you're talking about a trillion dollars. Uh, in in interest payments. And of course that'd be weighted average uh, interest rates, but if, but a large portion of that debt is short term. So that would actually get that would get repriced at those higher rates pretty quickly. Uh, and so you know basically I would I would say that you know I think that BlackRock and, and Stanley Fisher paper was actually pretty accurate in the sense that they don't really have a lot of tools, I would say, to combat inflation uh, and essentially they're kind of in a somewhat of a corner where they they risk giving up at least a portion of their credibility by, you know, there might be periods of time where they try to fight back against inflation, but I think it'll be like the 70s where it takes them quite a long time to do so. And by then you would have already essentially inflated away chunks of the debt during that time.
2: Right. So I think the the way I would summarize my view on this is that I see two things having to happen for this. And in- inflation scenario to play out. And I think either both of these are less than 50-50 propositions. So one thing that would have to happen, I think, is for equilibrium interest rates to rise substantially. Of course, there's a question of where equilibrium interest rates are, but at least in my perception, they're very low. They've been trending downward for 40 years and are likely to stay low. If equilibrium interest rates stay low, there won't be much pressure on on the Fed to inflate. But it's certainly possible that they will trend upward, perhaps partly due to fiscal uh, stimulus that we're seeing now and probably going forward. So if interest rates do rise, the Fed would have to raise interest rates to prevent high inflation. And then the second part of the hypothesis is that the fiscal authorities sort of bully the Fed into allowing a lot of inflation rather than putting the squeeze in the economy and forcing Congress to raise taxes to avoid defaulting on the debt. So those are two sort of questions that are outstanding in my view, like what's going to happen to global equilibrium, real interest rates? Will we continue to be in this surprisingly low interest rate environment going forward? I think probably we will, but I think it's also plausible that that we'll exit this and rates will go back to more normal levels. And the second is the political power game between Congress and the Fed. The Fed's pretty committed to low inflation. Will Congress or the president be able to bully the Fed into shifting towards a high inflation scenario? And by the way, to really make a significant difference, as I mentioned, I think, towards the beginning, inflation would have to be much higher. That is, we're not just talking about, well, the Fed will go from 2% inflation to a decade of 3% inflation. That's not going to solve fiscal problems. So if we're talking about Fed policy meaningfully monetizing debt and solving problems created by reckless fiscal policy, we'd be talking about extremely high uh, inflation rates, and there would have to be a lot of political pressure on the Fed in order for them to push inflation up to the kind of levels that would make a difference. Now, that may happen. We've we've seen that in the late 40s, as you correctly pointed out. Now, interestingly, in the 60s, and early seventies, we saw a lot of political pressure for inflation, but it really wasn't coming from debt monetization. It was coming from theories of the Phillips curve and short-term political considerations of lowering, you know, unemployment for election purposes and so on. And, you know, that sort of model of policy was somewhat discredited by the end of the seventies. And that's why we've had low inflation since the, the idea that we should just inflate to make the economy healthier and unemployment low. Has definitely gone out of favor. The, the earlier inflation that you you mentioned about the late 40s and 50s is, is something we haven't confronted in America for a long time. But of course, many developing countries fall into periods of high inflation for exactly those fiscal reasons. So there is certainly some risk of that happening if we run up excessive debts and if interest rates return to a more normal level. So, I mean, these are all questions of interpretation. And I do understand how people would disagree with me on my claim that. The low rates are not really artificial, but they're long-term trends in the global economy. Uh, it's a judgment call on my part, but uh, I, I I base that view on a lot of things that I'm looking at, not just sort of wishful thinking. That there's there's a lot of economic models that tell us that the Fed simply shouldn't be able to persistently hold rates at very low, below equilibrium levels for a long time without seeing a substantial surge in inflation, much more than we've seen in the last decade. So uh, maybe those models are wrong, but that's what I'm basing my analysis on.
1: Yeah, so I think, I guess to wrap up my point, I think, so I think a lot of that's correct. Uh, And I do think that, you know, we do have to watch the unfolding relationship between the fiscal authorities and the monetary authorities. So I think we're starting to see early signs of that kind of conflict occurring. And so, for example, we saw it under the prior administration, President Trump was very vocal of, uh, about the his thoughts on the Fed, for example, of, of how he felt that they were, uh say, you know, tightening monetary policy against the fact that he was loosening fiscal policy with his with his tax cuts, uh, and so he expressed public disfavor with that. And then more recently, uh, we see, for example, you know, when when Powell went to to Congress recently, uh, we saw, for example, uh, uh, Congresswoman AOC was questioning him and basically, you know, uh, essentially trying to. You could say convince him not to raise interest rates too early because of the impact it could have on unemployment. You know, I think we're in an environment where, in order for these types of policies to go through, where say we have some degree of inflation, we have kind of unprecedented fiscal activity, while the Fed uh, kind of stands by, is they they have to a- ask themselves what kind of political cover do they have? Uh, and so, you know, obviously in the 1940s you had an existential war, right? So. Uh, Instead of arguing over the finer points of Fed independence, they were like, "Well, let's let's you know win the war and then get back to it." Uh, And so, whereas in this period, they can point to the pandemic and then the kind of the you know the lasting effects from the pandemic uh, and the shutdowns and things like that. So they have that. That's you know uh, one of the best forms of cover uh, they could have. And then two, you have uh, things like we're we're especially starting to see this in Europe uh, with the idea of um, you know using climate change or green bonds. Uh, or infrastructure, clean infrastructure, that type of fiscal activity, uh, and then to have essentially the central bank accommodate that where possible, generally in a soft coordination type of way, uh, you know, to ensure that that those policies go through. And so I would say that you know, depending on how elections turn out, uh, depending on how this works out, I think that. There's a, a significant probability. I would, I, I guess, I would say that I, I agree with your assessment that it's a, it's a not a hundred percent probability. And just when we talk about percentages, I would say that you know they have a number of cover points that I think they're likely to turn to in order to justify some of these unusual monetary policies that we haven't really seen since, say, the '40s uh, in this type of uh, environment. And I'd also remind that you know that the, the Fed chair, for example, is is uh, nominated and appointed by the, the, the fiscal authorities, uh, and so you know that that independence is is still partially intertwined. And so I think that you know you can't get it, you can have a a period of time where the Fed can be independent, uh, but then if if there is a enough of a momentum shift uh, where you know the public and policymakers want these these say these fiscal policies. Uh, on behalf of whatever targets they're reaching, whether it's uh, unemployment levels, whether it's social justice, whether it's environmental concerns, whether it's uh, under the cover of, of post-pandemic recovery, uh, you know, if you get that shift lasting long enough, uh, then uh, essentially you have a, a Fed leader that is, you know, on board with that, indirectly at least.
2: Yeah, I, those are those are good points, and um, let me just say, sort of in in favor of your hypothesis, I I'm kind of glad that. Uh, people are making these warnings. Um, even though I'm a little bit skeptical about the hypothesis that high inflation is coming, I have felt for several years that we've been running up excessive debts. In my own view, that the bad thing that's likely to come out of this fiscal policy is is higher taxes in the future, which will slow economic growth. But I do concede that other possibilities are out there, and uh, it's certainly true if you look at the long sweep of macroeconomic history. When these sort of super cycles turn, not not a a business cycle, but I think you referred earlier to these long cycles, deflationary in the thirties, inflationary after World War II, disinflationary, you know, after the eighties and so on, these long cycles tend to catch us off guard. So even though I currently think that the very low interest rates are measuring something that's real going on with the global economy and are not really artificial, I have to concede I didn't forecast them a few decades ago, so it's hard to know how this the next cycle could turn. Uh, it may be partly generational. You have one generation that grows up worried about inflation, and you know pushes policy too much in a contractionary direction. The next generation grows up in a period where excessively contractionary policies are the problem, and they have a bias towards inflation. So I'm 65 years old. I see a lot of younger pundits who say, you know, why does anyone worry about inflation? They haven't seen any for decades. So it's very plausible that the next major mistake in macroeconomic policy over the next few decades might be excessive stimulus, given that we have a whole generation that's grown up in a period where arguably um, we were pushing too much in a disinflationary direction, especially after 2008. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty here that can't be answered through economic models it it depends on how the politics plays out and that's something i certainly cannot predict but i also tend to rely on market forecasts as sort of the least bad uh, forecasts i like to say good economists don't forecast they infer market forecasts so i try to look at what the markets are predicting and use that as a guidepost If the markets are forecasting excessively low inflation, like in 2008 and nine, I think monetary policy is too tight. If the market forecasts are for excessively high inflation going forward, then money's too easy. And even though we have currently very high inflation relative to the 2% target, most of the market forecasts properly calibrated are for a little over 2% PCE inflation going forward over five or 10 years. That's pretty close to the Fed's target. So I still think that uh, the best forecast out there right now is is that inflation will stay relatively low, even though I think there's much more tail risk over the next decade or two of overstimulus and high inflation, and I think much less tail risk of a repeat of the 2008-09 disinflationary environment. So I think the risks definitely are shifted more to the inflation side. Even as I think the most likely outcome is still something close to two percent inflation going forward,
1: I think that's a good way to look at it. So, if someone's managing pools of capital, uh, or if they're in some sort of you know position uh, of interest, uh, I do think watching you know it is ultimately this kind of you know because we're in a very macro-heavy time, and because a lot of the types of inflation at this at this period rest on fiscal decisions, uh, that it is it does come down to watching uh, what some of these signposts are. And so, if we see signs shifting towards say political gridlock that that could uh you know reduce uh, uh ongoing stimulus packages or if we see a, a shift towards uh higher taxation uh to fund uh government deficits then those, those signs would point towards uh you know more disinflation uh, and slower growth as you pointed out uh and and basically the, the you know the fed would be more in control in that type of environment uh, whereas on the other hand, if we do see this this more structural shift, this this more willingness to take on large, large deficits, uh, this willing to you know let inflation run hot uh, in order to optimize for other variables. Uh and so I do think that I I fully agree with the fact that it is ultimately a kind of a political question at this point. Uh, and so we have to we have to watch for signposts. And the only, I guess, caveat I would leave is that uh you know, we have to be concerned about or at least aware of what measurements we're using when we're judging the market's forward expectations uh, and because the Fed is active in those markets. Uh, And so, uh, you know, one thing I was pointing out last year, for example, uh, when we had that, you know, we had that very, very low 10-year bond yields is that we started to see, for example, uh, say the copper and gold ratio, which is, is, you know, not being directly controlled by the Fed, that was starting to point towards uh, a rising inflationary trend uh, before treasury yields did. Uh, and so I would I would just encourage participants to kind of pick their market measurements carefully to try to, f- you know, re- rely on ones that are maybe less, you know, that the, the Fed doesn't really have their thumb on the scale, uh, because that could distort uh, people from underlying signals. So, I you know, but, but largely, I agree.
2: Yeah, good points. I, I do agree that the things like the tip spreads are sometimes mislead. They can be distorted by changing risk premiums and so on. Another point that might be related uh, I could mention is that uh, one indicator I look at is also nominal wage growth. So there's a lot of talk now about this transitory inflation hypothesis. And I like to divide that up into two pieces. Is inflation temporary? Uh, I think likely it is in the sense that inflation will go down over the next few years. The other is, is inflation transitory in the sense that it will go down without the Fed having to do a tight money policy that triggers a sharp slowdown in the economy. And those are actually two different hypotheses. So inflation could be temporary just because the Fed is committed to doing whatever it takes to get back on target, or it could be transitory in the sense that it's just temporary supply bottlenecks and it'll go away on its own without having the Fed have to do much. To distinguish between those two hypotheses, it's important to to look at nominal wage growth. If that continues to accelerate, that would create a situation where to control inflation, the Fed would have to do a a real contractionary policy that uh, squeezes those wage growth uh, numbers out of the economy, resulting in higher unemployment. If, on the other hand, inflation remains confined to things like oil and used car prices and so on and doesn't bleed into nominal wages very much, then it could likely go away without requiring a, a tight money policy that would trigger a recession. So nominal wage growth is another indicator that uh, is it evidence is whether it's bleeding through into a, a generalized persistent inflation process, such as we saw in the 1960s when nominal wage growth accelerated along with price
1: inflation. Yeah, I agree. And I, and so I think that because it's fiscally driven inflation, it's we're in an environment where, for example, 2020, wages were not going up. But for example, personal income still went up because uh, people received transfer payments from the government and therefore their overall spending power had increased uh, even if their wages didn't. But of course, because those transfer payments were temporary, there was no reason for the Fed to say try to combat inflation in that period because they're looking at these transitory effects. And so I think that's, that's one of the reasons why the Fed would be slow to act against inflation when that inflation is more fiscally driven uh, than when it's more structural. And so you know we've had this commodity spike and then when some of those commodities cooled off, uh, we still have ongoing semiconductor shortages that are that are contributing to these these you know car prices and things like that. For example, the next things to watch, I think you know we're seeing a higher risk of rent inflation going forward. Uh, we've had you know that cooled off in recent year due to you know a couple of reasons, including uh, you know moratoriums on kicking people out of their of their rentals. Uh, but as we move past that into more normalization, there's signs that that rent should uh, and already is uh, upturning to, to kind of catch up with some of the fact that these property prices went up. And then I do think, yet yeah, longer term, uh, knowing whether or not the Fed will act or not will largely depend on on these more longer term things like wages going up if they go up. Uh, and, uh, and then I would circle back to that kind of political environment where. You know, imagine that we, we do get that structural kind of wage increases, and then the Fed tries to move against that. I can imagine a number of politicians saying, "So wait, wages are finally going up, and now you're gonna you're gonna increase unemployment and and kind of taper that down." And so I think that's where it starts to become that more political question, and we have to see which politicians are in charge, uh, look at the timing of of say the Fed chair being uh, renominated, uh, and that sort of activity.
2: Good point. And on the um... Good point about the the housing. Uh, To be intellectually consistent, I need to point out that um, in the early 2010s, I did a blog post talking about how inflation was overstated because uh, rents were going up quite a bit, even as housing prices were going down. But housing prices were not in the CPI. That is the price of homes. Instead, the rental equivalent was in the CPI, and that was going up. So I argue that the true rate of inflation was lower if you put in the price of newly built houses. Now, as you point out correctly, we're seeing the opposite today with rents relatively flat or low and new house prices going up rapidly. So to be consistent, I I do need to concede that perhaps the actual rate of inflation is now higher than what the CPI is showing uh, because of the price of new houses not being included in the index, even though it's an economically meaningful number for sort of macroeconomic equilibrium. So I, I know how they compute it using rental equivalent, but if we're thinking about macroeconomic equilibrium, the price of new houses is very important because it's a, a, a driver of uh, all sorts of activities in the economy. So anyway, that, that's, that's a very important point, I think, a distinction between those two types of housing inflation.
1: I agree that's a great point
0: maybe that's a good point to to, to to wrap on I want to be sensitive to 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 everyone's time uh Lynn uh, Scott thank you so much for, for 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 coming on the podcast this has been a, a great episode perhaps we'll we'll continue the conversation uh, at, at, at another point uh, I recommend listeners check out uh Lynn Alden's uh, fantastic blog it's just uh lynnalden.com and uh, and Scott Sumner's uh, as well. Uh, which is uh, Money money Illusion. And if uh, you, you just check that out on Google, there's there's a lot of great, great stuff. Uh, Scott, Lynn, thank you both so much for, for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
2: Enjoyed it.
0: If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.